Costello. I'm going to New York with you. You know, Bucky Harris, the Yanks manager, gave me a job as coach for as long as you're on the team. Look, Habit, if you're the coach, you must know all the players. I certainly do. Well, you know, I, mean, I never met the guys, so you'll have to tell me their names, and then I'll know who's playing on the team. Oh, I'll, I'll tell you their names, but you know, strange it may seem, they give these ball players nowadays very peculiar names. You mean funny names? Strange names, pet names, like Dizzy Dean and... His brother Daffy. Daffy Dean. I'm their French cousin. French? Gouffet. Gouffet Dean. Oh, I see. <laughs> well, let's see, we have on the bags, we have who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. That's what I want to find I out. I say, who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. Are you the manager? Yes. You're going to be the coach, too? Yes. And you know the fellow's name? Oh, I should. Well, then who's on first? Yes. I mean the fellow's name. Who? The guy on first. Who? The first base. Who? The guy playing first. Who is on first? I'm asking you who's on first. That's the man's name. That's whose name? Yes. Well, go ahead and tell me. That's it. That's who? Yes. <laughs> Look, you got a first baseman? Certainly. Who's playing first? That's right. When you pay off the first baseman every month, who gets the money? Every dollar of it. <laughs> All I'm trying to find out is the fellow's name on first base. Who? The guy that gets the That's money. That's it. Who gets the money on he first base? He does, every dollar. Sometimes his wife comes down and collects it. Who's wife? Yes. <laughs> What's wrong with that? Look, what I want to know is when you sign up the first baseman, how does he sign his name to the Who? contract? The guy. Who? How does he sign his That's name? That's how he signs it. Who? Yes. <laughs> All I'm trying to find out is what's the guy's name on first base? No, what is on second base? I'm not asking you who's on second. Who's on first? One base at a time. Well, don't change the players. Though. I'm not changing nobody. Take it easy, buddy. I'm only asking you who's the guy on first base? That's right. Okay. All right. <laughs> Name on first base. No, what is on second? I'm not asking you who's on who's second. Who's on first? I don't know. Oh, he's on third. We're not talking about him. Now, let's <laughs> now, how did I get on third base? Why, you mentioned his name. If I mention a third baseman's name, who did I say is playing third? Hello again, everybody. This is Rich Martin coming to you with uh, a uh, podcast, and it's called A Life in Baseball, A Life in General. This is our 21st inning, our 21st episode. Thank you for listening. Um, I want to talk about a couple of things. Uh, one is um, yesterday the Mets uh, had their old-timers day. You know, I'm a big Mets fan. I grew up as a Brooklyn Dodger fan. I cried. I was uh, nine years old when the Dodgers uh, left uh, Brooklyn and moved to Los Angeles. Uh, I, I jeered at, at, the, um, at the, uh, the, the hanging of Walter O'Malley who was the general manager, I'm sorry, who was the owner of the uh, Dodgers. Uh, they, used to, they used to get a dummy and hang him and, and throw the rope around a tree in Brooklyn, and then they would burn him. They, they, were, they weren't playing. But, um, uh, you know, that was a, a rough time in Brooklyn. I've told the story about how my dad would then take me to see the Los Angeles Dodgers when they came to Philadelphia, and uh, dear old dad, we'd take a two-hour ride, and we'd uh, go to Philly and watch the Dodgers play. And I got to see my my hero, Duke Snyder, the Duke of Flatbush, who uh, was my favorite player growing up. Um, and um, ultimately, uh, he was uh, traded to the Mets in 1963. And um, great player, Hall of Famer, finished with 411 home runs. Uh, at one point, held the record for most home runs in World Series play, um, and um, was a great center fielder. It was part of the trilogy of great center fielders that um, played in New York in the uh, in the fifties and sixties: uh, Willie Mays, um, Duke Snyder, and Mickey Mantle. Um, so they um, they retired uh, Mays's. Uh, 
uniform number 24 at all times day at City Field. And uh, there's been some, um, you know, talk about it being uh, not a good move because Willie didn't play much for the Mets um, uh, with a giant, obviously, and uh, and how um, it shouldn't have happened. But I think it was great. The story how Joan Payson, the original owner of the Mets, who, uh, who didn't do everything well. I mean, she was involved. She, she allowed... Um, um, you know, some things to go wrong with the ball club, but she was the person who spent her money to bring baseball back to New York in the form of a National League team. And uh, she promised Willie Mays, who was, uh, he was her favorite player, that she would retire his uniform and no Met would ever wear it. Well, a couple of Mets wore 24. Um, Robinson Cano wore it with special permission uh, from uh, Willie Mays, and there were a couple other players. But um, I think it was great. I think the old-timers day was great. I got to see, you know, uh, when we ran the camp, uh, of course, all our guests, we had a guest every week, eight weeks um, of baseball camp for 35 years. That's uh, a lot of guests. And um, we had, of course, mostly Mets and uh and Yankees, when we uh, ran the camp at the College of New Jersey, we had a bunch of Phillies came in. One of the best guests we ever had was Tug McGraw, uh, who um, was the relief pitcher, the closer on the 69 in the team. Uh, he came up with the uh, slogan, you got to believe. Uh, he's the father of, uh, of uh, Tim McGraw, who's a famous country music uh, singer. And and I'm, he came to camp, but he came as a Philly. By that time, he was pitching for the Phillies. So um, uh, anyway, um, it was um, you know it was great to see. <clears throat> excuse me, all these old guys uh, who, who and many many I had at camp. Um, a great majority of them actually, um, and um, it was great to see. I always tell about how. Keith Hernandez had come numerous times. He was a great guest and a, a real good guy, real regular guy, but uh, sort of the same persona as you see now on the Meta broadcast. He's a little bit of a, I don't want to say a space head because that sounds disrespectful, and I have the ultimate of respect for Keith as a player and as a person. He was, a, he was great with the kids, a very warm guy, <clears throat> and I appreciated his visits to camp. But, uh, you know, he would blurt out things and say things. And, you know, it was just he's a funny guy. And uh, um, I remember going to uh, Ben's Deli um, on Long Island. We were at CW Post running the camp. And he, um, we took him to Ben's Deli for lunch. And he ordered a cheeseburger. And I had to explain to him that uh, there was no dairy products. They didn't mix uh, dairy with uh, meat uh, in the Jewish, in a kosher deli. And, uh, why would he know that? I mean, other than the fact that being <clears throat> worldly and, you know, traveling all over, how would he know that? So that was interesting. I thought I got a kick out of that. And he was a wealth of information as far as, uh, as far as, uh, baseball and as far as hitting all of the, the great majority of things I learned about hitting. I learned from, uh, Keith, um, and, um, uh, it was great to see him. Bobby Valentine was there yesterday. Lee Mazzelli, 
Johnny Franco, um, all these guys who would come to would come to um, a camp and and uh, and speak to the kids. Turk Wendell, uh, I can go on and on. Uh, so it was great, and I'm happy they did it. I tell you, you got to be impressed with Steve Cohen, the uh, the owner of the Mets, who was uh, spending his money to bring some real class uh, to the organization. Um, you know, I haven't gone to a Met game in a while uh, because I, I resented uh, the fact that um, that the Wilpons uh, didn't or couldn't spend in order to, to ha- have us be superior. Um, and um, now that uh, Uncle Steve, as they call him, is... Uh, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> excuse me is uh, spending, um, I think it's it's time to go back and and um, give him some money back for all the money that he's spending. Uh, the Mets are having a great season. I'm so excited to watch their games. I'm so excited that their record is as, as good as it is. I'm so happy. I tell you, I love Max Scherzer. What a, what a bulldog. What a, what a great addition. At 38 years old, it's amazing. Of course, Jacob is uh, one in a million. I hope they re-sign him. Cohen seems to think that they uh, they can and they will. Uh, and all the other great players. I've been impressed with uh, Brett Beatty, who just came up. He's got a great swing, as Keith says, and Keith would know about lefty swings. Um, so anyway, uh, it was really a lot of fun, and it was interesting. What happened was, I, I uh, so I wanted to go to Old Timers Day, and I wanted to bring... I had promised my sister and brother-in-law, Mio, that uh, we would uh, go to a game soon. And um, and so I thought Old Timers Day would be awesome, you know, just because uh, everybody would be there. And it hasn't happened, I think, since 1993, 94. Of course, on the other hand, Mio is uh, uh, in a bout with the esophagus, esophageal, I believe it's called, cancer. He's hanging in, but of course, it's it's not easy. And, uh, you know, the idea of him being out and about for an afternoon and then an evening, I guess, was maybe too much to expect. But in the course of trying to get this organized, I called an old buddy, <clears throat> or I should say an old player of mine, uh, Donny Otto, who uh, we used to call the ticket master because he ran a, um, a ticket business, um, you know, where he sold uh, tickets uh, like StubHub does today and, and so on. And um, so I called him, and I hadn't spoken to him in a while. Um, he was, uh, you know, he didn't have the typical build of a of an athlete. He really didn't. I mean, I don't want to be disrespectful, but he was a little dumpy. I mean, I could say it because nobody's more dumpy than me. But let me tell you, he was an athlete. He had tremendous talent. He was incredibly athletic in every sport, and I coached him in basketball and coached him in baseball. He was a winner. Um, I, I can't say enough good things about him athletically and as a person. Um, anyway, I, I reached out to him, and he immediately got back to me, and we spoke. It was great talking to him, and um, we had set something up, and then, unfortunately, <clears throat> it didn't work out. Uh Because uh, Mio really wasn't up to it, and so um, we had to pass. But we'll get it done. 
if God wants, he's doing okay, Mio, and, if, 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 and we'll get it done uh, hopefully soon. But it was great talking to Donnie, and uh, there was a... Um, a story with uh, that I used to tell uh, with Donnie all the time. It's when I was involved uh, with um, starting my career, which lasted uh, very shortly, in helping out the uh, the guys um, uh, in Brooklyn that were uh, prominent in Bensonhurst. Um, I'm reading a book now. I recommend to you. Um, Zuki sent it to me and. Uh, I read it uh, immediately, and it, it talked about all of the things that happened in my youth. And the book is called Carmine and the 13th Avenue Boys. Um, if you're interested in that type of thing, about growing up in Brooklyn during that period of time, about the uh, influences that uh, that uh, were um, presented to us by uh, the local guys, the local boys, um you, you'd enjoy it. But the, the story involves, uh, I, I was something of a driver. Uh, that was sort of my first job. I, I fancied myself as a, as a driver, uh, you know, a special type driver. Pretty reckless, but also with great reflexes. Um, my claim to fame was I could drive backwards as fast as anybody could drive forward. So I could literally get on a highway and drive 60 miles an hour going backwards, curves and all. That was my claim to fame. If I tried it now, <laughs> after about two feet, I'd kill myself. But uh, it was something I was able to do. And so that got around the neighborhood. Uh, my grandfather was um, involved with these guys. And so they would, um, every once in a while, hire me uh, to drive something or someone um, and um, wouldn't tell me what it was, wouldn't even tell me who was in the back of the car, but they'd give me the keys to a limo and allow me to uh, take a person from point A to point B. Uh, one day, I, uh, we were in the Bensonhurst Bay Ridge area, and um, uh, I was uh, called the day before, middle of the night. Of course, there were no cell phones then, and I was asked uh, if I could pick somebody up, and um, and drive him and this and that. So I would drive to this spot, and uh, there'd be a big um, uh, black, not a limo, but a black car, like a Ford, almost looked like a, a, a plainclothes a police car. And already in the back was uh, sitting someone on one side uh, and, and on the other side in the back seat, two people. I didn't know who they were. I didn't know what they wanted, but I knew I had to drive them from Bensonhurst to uh, downtown Brooklyn. And um, and I got a nice penny. I don't remember how much they paid me. I think it was 100 bucks. Uh, which back then, we're talking about the, uh, <clears throat> the late 60s. Uh, back then was a lot of money. Early 70s, it was a lot of money. So um, I got in the car and, uh, and we started off and uh, not a word was said, you know, I wasn't supposed to, not that I wasn't allowed to talk to them, but it was frowned upon. And of course, basically what they said to me is only, only speak if you're spoken to. And I said, fine, I wasn't interested. I just had the directions. I knew where I was going. Uh, I knew Brooklyn pretty well. And, um, and so we took off. We weren't five minutes into the, uh, into the trip when um, I see a, a, an unmarked car behind us. 
Now, back then, you didn't know if it was a cop car or maybe one of the other f- members of another family who wanted uh, who had some interest in you. So I immediately uh, noticed it and uh, heightened, you know, and the car stuck with us. So uh, I did a couple of maneuvers, you know, turning sharply at a couple of different corners. I lost them at one point, and then they picked me up again a couple of blocks later. Um, and so it was... Uh, it was scary. Now, I don't know to this day if if it was... Remember now, I was on high alert. Uh, I knew I had important people in the car. I knew that it, were, it was 100 bucks to take a 20-minute ride, you know. So um, so I don't, rem- I don't really know for sure, but I, I, I noticed that the car was getting a little closer. Uh, for a while, it stayed a couple of cars behind. And I know, and you know, you, when you're driving in in Brooklyn, um, you know, there's a lot of lights, a lot of stop signs, so <clears throat> you would stop every two seconds, you know. Um, and uh, as we were driving, I heard what I thought was a shot. Now it could have been a backfire on a car, it could have been I don't I don't know what it was, or it could have been a shot. I don't know. Nothing hit anything. But that basically scared the shit out of me, and I took off. I started driving quickly, and the car was right behind me. So um, we, we drove around Bensonhurst Bay Ridge area, um, and for about 10 minutes with the car um, uh, right behind me. Um, I, I don't know who it was, and I wasn't interested in finding out. Um, long story short, I, I'm on uh, Beth Avenue in Brooklyn, uh, we're driving along. We're coming to a turn. There are all these uh, nice homes, uh, middle-class homes, but nice homes nonetheless. And um, I, <clears throat> I decide. I, so I, I turn a corner, and I lose them for a second. And I decide to uh, go into a driveway uh, and see if they'll pass me. It wasn't a smart move, and I never did it again because the problem was that I got caught in the driveway. If they catch me, I have nowhere to go. But um, at the time, I thought it was a good move. And uh, I um, I pull into the driveway. The car passes by. And um, so I think I, I made it. And I back up to come out of the driveway. And I see the car coming directly at us. So I make a turn. There's a little embankment uh, a fence, a little embankment, and the house was on top of a little this little embankment. <clears throat> as I'm pulling out, and uh, I, I start to turn, and the car's right on top of me. And the thing that really shook me, <coughs> excuse me, is that uh, one of the windows opened. The windows weren't open. One of the windows opened. I I went through the fence. I went up the embankment. And I went right through a bay window, a big window of, in the front of the house. So now the car was about halfway in the house and halfway sticking out. The front of the car was in this guy's um, living room, and the back of the car was hanging out of the house. The problem was that my, um, that my pa- passengers couldn't get out of the car. So they started screaming. And I literally pulled the car, I, I floored it, and went deeper into the house so that they were inside the house now. They could open the doors, and now just the trunk of the car was sticking outside. Who were the people in the black car? 
What did they do to us? We'll never know because I got out of the car and I started running out the back door. I saw another guy, a little older than me, young man, running behind me, and behind him was this enormous fat guy. I never got a chance to see his face, but in looking at him, you know, obviously he was uh, higher up, and here he came running out of the back of the car, and and, and the look of hysteria on his face. Um, We got out of the uh, house through the back, and we took off in three different directions. Um, did anybody ever grab us? No. After uh, about 15 minutes of running and, you know, a lot of uh, houses there, so a lot of backyards, a lot of, uh, after three, um, uh, after five minutes, 15 minutes of running, um, I just started walking. I mean, there was no damage to me. I don't know about the guys in the back, but probably not the way they ran out of there. Uh, <clears throat> there was nobody home in the house that I saw of, unless I ran over the guy. But I did get a chance to notice the television that I went past in the living room. It was very nice. It was a large TV for that time. And uh, the bad news is that the television was on. So I hope the guy wasn't... I never heard anything. But anyway, we we walked away, and uh, we never found out who was in the car. Or at least I never found out. They probably looked into it. But... um, The next time um, uh, they asked me to drive, which I was hesitant about, but I needed the money, they gave me 200 bucks. So I guess I did a a good job. I don't know how much damage I caused to this guy's living room, but um, and we'll never know. But uh, it was an interesting uh, escapade, so to speak. Uh, One that I'm uh, I'm not proud of, but I am proud that we got away. Um, you know, uh, growing up in that time, um, was a challenge, uh, because, um, everybody in the neighborhood was connected in some way or other. It was the uh, hotbed of, uh, where all the soldiers lived and, uh, all of the five families were involved there. They all had, uh, clubhouses and, uh, uh, places that they hung out. They all were involved in the rackets. Uh, you know, it was still somewhat honorable back then. Uh, now, uh, you know, you don't know who to trust, and they'll shake you down if you're Italian uh, or whatever you are. Uh, you know, back then, you there was a little bit of uh, loyalty and a little bit of, um, you know, you could go to one of these guys for justice. You know, the famous scene in The Godfather is when I, the first scene in Godfather 1 is when the... Uh, um, I, I don't know, is it the baker? I forget who, maybe Enzo. I don't remember who it is. But anyway, um, he comes in and asks uh, Marlon Brando um, if he could um, if he could help him because his daughter um, got uh, got raped and these guys got a suspended sentence. Suspended sentence. Uh, he told uh, uh, Vito Corleone and... Um, and Vito, um, I think he got Luca Brazzi. He said, give it to Luca Brazzi. And I think Luca Brazzi was the one who took care of uh, these two clowns who, um, who touched the, um, uh, the, uh, the young lady. Um, so um, anyway, in, in growing up back then, um, there were uh, a lot of stories um, uh, like that. Um, 
we, um, you know, one of the things I did with a lady Guadalupe is uh, we had the first bingo game. You know, you raise money by running bingo games. And um, it was a new uh, venture back then in the late 60s. And um, ultimately, um, um, it, it became a way to make money for nonprofits and so on. But um, I... Uh, commissioned the uh, New York State uh, Board of Taxation, I said, can't we do it for, you know, youth organizations as well? They had a rule that it couldn't be done at that point, and, and I helped to get the rule overturned. Actually, I, I did a lot in that fight, and so we got to run uh, a bingo game. We ran it at, uh, I forget what they called the hall. It was in downtown Brooklyn. It was in a bad area in Midwood, Brooklyn, near Brooklyn College. And um, and the only reason I mentioned bingo is because my mom, who's doing okay at her uh, assisted living home, um, she plays bingo every day. She has trouble seeing, so they help her out, but uh, she enjoys her uh, bingo game. And uh, bingo was a big part of the money raising that we did. We used to run every Saturday night, which was a burden, and I've mentioned this before, but... Um, the cast of characters that came through Bingo and the amount of money we raised, um, you know, what, what was what kept our organization going. Um, of course, um, you know, um, as long as I was there, it was a, um, you know, a big deal. And I, and I, and I admit readily <coughs> that it was no joke on a Saturday night where people wanted to be with their families, go out, party. All of these young coaches, all of the, 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 the administrators would go to this bingo hall and would shoot their night. And I would, I would constantly uh, uh, skim from the top, you know, take a, maybe 50 bucks out at the time uh, over, the, um, you know, uh, over the money that we had raised, which was totally illegal. And, uh, and I would take the guys out to dinner, you know, or, or I wouldn't take them out. We'd go out to dinner and... Uh, and the organization, the monies that I had taken would pay for the dinner. And that would be our little reward. So it was nice. We spent the night together. We worked hard. Running a bingo game is no joke. We did it at uh, Ramapo uh, quite a bit and made a lot of money with it as well. We had to get special permission from that, which we did. We did a lot of innovations at Ramapo, uh, which, of course, have uh, been stolen from us now. But uh, our... Uh, we we did a, we had a great night where we ran bingo uh, and we had uh, everybody had to buy five tickets every player so we immediately had you know two two hundred two fifty in the house and every family had to bring a um, a tricky tray you know something to be donated it was really cool um, and um, it was funny I was talking the other day to someone and uh, from back then and they said yeah we used to have a great time at the bingo games. But uh, the fact that you cheated didn't help. I said, cheated? What did we do? She says, well, your mother always, always won. I said, well, first of all, she didn't always win. Second of all, she did win quite a bit, but she was an outstanding bingo player. Now, of course, we're talking about luck for the most part, but she had some various strategies. I don't know exactly what she did, but she had some various strategies that would work. And uh, we never cheated, but those nights we'd raise quite a bit of money. We'd raise, um, you know, in, in, I mean, at somewhere between six to $10,000 for a one-night affair. And we had a lot of fun. And, and um, 
of course, they they steal it from me now. Um, you know, we um, we did a lot of things like that. Um, that um, certain athletic directors uh, didn't care for because we were making more money than the um, we were making more money than than the other teams, and rightly so. We were the only t- real team there. The other teams were were, were, were phonies, um, and. Um, you know, like when we had our golf outing, which nobody would ever have the, the nuts to, you know, to, to run. We ran our golf outing, and uh, that was greatly successful. Now, unbelievably, there's a golf outing for the athletic department. And, of course, most of the people that go to this, um, this golf outing are, are baseball players because they're familiar with what we had. They should only know the real story. <clears throat> but that's, <coughs> excuse me. For another uh, podcast, maybe one that's coming soon. Hopefully, we'll see. But um, I'm, in, in in talking about these uh, old times, um, I, I you know I don't know if if, if you're aware. I, I tried to talk about it for a second last week, but I do fancy myself as someone who could carry a tune. Um, and uh, I I, w- I went uh, I was out with a couple of the guys. <coughs> Excuse me, from the uh, from the summer collegiate team, the world famous Overpeck Creek Monsters, and we were doing some uh, baseball lessons, baseball drills, I guess you'd say, and um, and I asked them if they had heard um, the the podcast uh, twenty one. Um, I think I mentioned this is twenty two, although I might have screwed that up at the beginning. I don't remember. Anyway. Um, they said they had, and I spoke a lot about uh, the Creek Monsters uh, and all the fun that we had this year. And I said, well, did you hear the guy at the end sing? And um, one of the guys said, yeah, I heard the song, but who was that? I said, who was it? It was me. I'm the one who sang that song. And they go, really? Wow, you know, we didn't realize it. So um, I mentioned again, last week I sang uh, The Long and Winding Road, a Beatles song. Go back and listen to it. It's the very end of the podcast. And uh, this time I'm going to sing a Billy Joel song uh, that is a favorite of my uh, brother-in-law's. And uh, so take a listen at the end. Um, I I don't know if it'll uh, please you. I mean, again, I'm not a singer, but I can carry a tune. And I love singing. You know, Sinatra, one of my uh, heroes, uh, would say that he liked nothing better than to sing to live people. Like he would enjoy watching their faces as he turned uh, a tune, and and uh, so Lachia had a great influence uh, because I really uh, singing put you apart. It it made you. I remember singing at a, a Ramapo picnic one time, and one of the vice presidents turned around and said, uh, "Who would have Who would have dunk it? Who would have known that this guy can sing or carry a tune?" And then I would sing at all the Christmas parties that were, um, were set up at Ramapo. They had me every uh, every winter, every Christmas, they had me, I'd start singing the song, and as they'd open the doors of the gym where it was set up for the annual Christmas party, um, and um, and I would sing and serenade. That, that went on for a while, and I really enjoyed it. And then uh, somebody else asked to sing with me, and um, it bothered me, you know, because, and, and, I, and I was wrong. I mean, that person deserved to sing as uh, much as she wanted. 
But uh, I resented it because that was my gig, and it made me feel, you know, special. Again, people were, and then, of course, you get every range of some people who put, you know, clog their ears so they don't have to hear me, and others who said I had the voice of a nightingale. Yeah, maybe like a dead nightingale or one a dying nightingale, but uh, but still, it was you know it was interesting that uh, that um, helped me to and I and I've sung all my life that helped me to sort of come out of my shell and also to um, also d- define some parts of my personality where I'm a little um, what would you say I'm not shy. Uh, I'll speak my mind. Uh, I'll say things that I need to say. If I believe in something, uh, I'll I'll go about trying to um, um, I'll go about trying to um, um, you know uh, to prove it or believe it or um, embrace it, or whatever. Uh, those are the things that always. Uh, I mean, it's it, it's it's the same stuff that has got me in trouble every stop that I've been in. And it's also what which allowed me to excel, so I'm very proud of that attitude. Um, and you know, it is all about attitude. Um, I I believe in myself a great deal. I think if you do, everything and anything is possible. And um, and I've been uh, very forward. I they they say that I come across as something of a character, and I I, I love that. I embrace that as well. I want people. Because I do have something to say, and I have said it over the years to the thousands of uh, players um, and campers that I've come into contact with, and parents and such. Uh, one of my biggest things that I've been uh, criticized for lately on Facebook is that I cannot stand this um, magnification of the Little League World Series. I can't stand it. I can't see putting these young boys, 12-year-old boys and and some younger, on this incredible pedestal for the sake of people making money on them. I mean, there's absolutely too much pressure. People who haven't played baseball or been involved with baseball don't understand the pressure that I, I always have said in the past that baseball players are incredibly courageous without even knowing it. Like a kid will say, I don't have the balls to do this or that. Why? You don't have the balls. You stand up in front of your family, your friends, you put the weight of all that pressure on your shoulders, and most times you perform in a way that excels. What are you talking about? You're unbelievably courageous. And so they take these 12-year-old kids they put all this pressure on them. They televise them. They, they do uh, little tidbits on them, you know, little uh, exposés on them. Um, they, they, um, they pound out the idea that uh, winning is everything, you know, although they come across uh, that they don't. And it's all about making money for ABC and ESPN and, and at, on the shoulders of these kids. How do I know that? Because I ran a baseball camp for 35 years, and for 35 years, I saw, especially at the beginning, how the pressure of trying to succeed, trying to excel, how that pressure would take its toll on young people, some that would that would be with them for the rest of their lives. That's why when you came to Rich Martin's All-Star Baseball Camp, you came to have fun. Fun was first, learning was second, 
and then playing the game. I mean, there are kids that would come and play 12, 13, 14 games in a week, and that would be their season. But along with it would be karaoke game, karaoke singing and trivia contests and screwing around and having fun and, and, and so on. Um, I know full well the pressure that it took on college students, and I know full well the pressure that it's on these pros. The, the reason they make these millions of dollars is because they deserve it and because the people around them, the people who sell them, are making much more money. So I don't believe in, I certainly believe in, in, a, in a, a Little League World Series like the ones they had many, many years ago that were held in, in Williamsport that were, at the end, there'd be a little something saying um, who won. Um, maybe there'd be an article as opposed to what goes on now. Um, and um, let's see how many times, and they do it sometimes. I give them credit for that. Let's see how many times they, um, they they show a kid crying at the end who's come this long way and who isn't emotionally, even physically ready to handle uh, the, 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 the tremendous disappointment of, of, of being, uh, being basically a loser. Because in order to be a winner, in order to be a champion, there's got to be people who lose. And the idea of, of putting it on such a bold stage, to me, is disgraceful. Uh, and I'll always think that, and I've gotten in trouble for that, but um, it's a joke. It's a joke, and, and it's all about money, as is many things. You know, America is not what it used to be, and I'm disappointed. I, I've said this many times. I don't, you know, when 9-11 happened... And it was a tr so traumatic for all of us. What I took away from 9-11 is that here you have men who are somewhat, who I believe are religious. I, I mean, in some way, believe in God in some way, who have families, who are young men and have their lives to live, to be able to support their family. And yet they get into a, a plane and, and kill all these innocent people and themselves, could you do it? What does it take to do it? I love America, but would I get in a plane? Would I kill innocents and take my own life? I mean, I can't see a scenario unless maybe I saved a lot of people. But if somebody's capable of doing that, then then what's in their mind? What do they What do we... What are we doing? And and of course the the, the quick answer is well, they they've been um, you know brainwashed to think that way, and hopefully that's true, because I would hate to think what, what I mean right now I don't believe anything anybody says, in anything, if if the news is reported I don't believe it, I, I believe that somebody got killed if there's a death certificate, but how he got killed. It depends on what channel you're listening to. It depends on what the, the, the politics are of the people speaking it. I mean, uh, I'm sad, it's sad to say, and I feel terrible about it, but it's the truth. I mean, um, we're not the country we were, and, and um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm saddened by that, uh, especially for our children, who, of course, are our greatest resource. And as John Kennedy said, our only hope for the future. Well, please listen to this uh, Billy Joel song that I'm going to uh, sing when we're done. 
Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Thank you, and God bless. Good night, my angel, time to close your eyes And save these questions for another day I think I know what you've been asking me I think you know what I've been trying to say I promised I would never leave And you should always know Wherever you may go No matter where you are I never will be far away Good night my angel Now it's time to sleep And still so many things I want to say Remember all the songs you sang for me When we went sailing on an emerald bay And like a boat out on the ocean I'm rocking you to sleep The water's dark and deep Inside this ancient heart You'll always be a part of me My angel, now it's time to dream And dream how wonderful your life will be Someday your child may cry And if you sing this lullaby Then in your heart there will always be a part of me Someday we'll all be gone, but lullabies go on and on. They never die, that's how you and I 